While we come to God's word this morning, join me in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we are in verses 24 through 29 for this morning, and this is a major text in John's gospel. John 20, 24 through 29. In fact, this is the climactic passage of this entire book. This is what everything in the last 19 and a half chapters has been moving towards and building to. This is John's mic drop moment passage. It's right here. From here on out, John will summarize what his book is about. You see that in verses 30 through 31. It's a summary statement. When we enter into chapter 21, we come to an epilogue. John will transition from Jesus's ministry to the apostles' responsibility to care for Christ's sheep after he ascends. And so here, John 20, 24 through 29, is John's climactic conclusion to this gospel. And you can see how John has built to this moment. Everything John has written has been primarily about Christ who he is, his person, what he was sent to accomplish, his saving work. We've seen Christological truths that John has highlighted through personal testimonies. In John 1, John the Baptist declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who is Jesus? First page. He is the one sent from heaven by God, that's his person. What was he sent to do? What's his work? He was sent to fulfill every Passover lamb sacrifice that had been offered over the last thousands of years. Later in John 1, Nathanael confessed, you are the king of Israel. Again, who is Jesus? He is the promised king all Israel had been waiting for. In John 4, the Samaritans declared Jesus not only to be the savior of the Jews, but also to be the savior of the world. Savior for even the despised Gentiles. In John 6, Peter confessed, you are the holy one of God. In John 9, the healed blind man confessed Jesus to be the son of man, the coming king would one day be given glory, power, and a kingdom. In John 11, Martha declared, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God. John 16, the apostles profess, we believe that you came from God. It's been testimony after testimony. This is the melodic line that rings through this gospel. Who is Jesus? He is the sacrificed lamb who died for the sins of his people. Who is Jesus? He is the promised servant who is also the sovereign king. Who is Jesus? He is the eternal son, promised in Isaiah 9, the sinless savior of Isaiah 53, the promised ruler of Psalm 2. That's who Christ is. Then confession after confession, testimony after testimony. There's others that we could highlight. 
but all of it is building towards and culminating with this five-word confession of faith from Thomas at the end of verse 28. Look at it. Who is Jesus? He is my Lord and my God. This is the climactic testimony. Why? For a few reasons. The first is this brings John's gospel full circle. You know how it begins, John 1.1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Well, now the gospel ends with the clearest and most concise testimony of Jesus's deity. This is the bookend. He is my God. Second reason, this is the climactic testimony. It shows that faith in Christ cannot stay in the abstract. Saving faith must be a personal faith. Hearing other people's testimonies of Jesus is not enough. There must be a personal confession made about Jesus. This is why John wrote this book. He has not written so that we would leave unchanged by what we've read. Look at verse 31. This will be the summary statement. These have been written to you. Why? So that you may believe. That's the change. That's the goal. This is personal. Make the same personal confession of faith Thomas made. I'm writing that you may believe and that believing you, it's personal, you may have life in his name. Eternal life only comes through a personal confession of Jesus. And we'll see that in a moment. Third, a third reason why this is John's climactic testimony. It's because of the person who declared this final confession. My Lord, my God comes from the lips of one who had doubted Jesus's resurrection and lordship. This confession is powerful because it is the confession of a skeptic. That's the one who makes this grand testimony of faith. And notice, he says he will not make this confession unless he not only sees the resurrected Jesus, that's one thing, but he goes beyond that. I need to touch the scars of the resurrected Jesus. That's how much Thomas doubted Jesus's resurrection and lordship. So again, this is John's mic drop moment because Thomas is the perfect apologetic witness for everything he's written up to this point. This is the final witness you want the jury to hear before you rest your case. Here is the unbelieving skeptic who became convinced. The doubter who could not help but to declare the deity of Jesus. And then fourth, the fourth reason why this is John's climactic testimony. It is because Thomas's words, mark this down, Thomas's words, my Lord and my God, these words are the Christian confession of faith. This is the Christian confession of faith that must be made if someone is going to be forgiven of their sins. In the words of one author, this is the single central 
foundational and distinguishing article of Christianity. It is the first essential confession of faith every true Christian must make. The confession of faith is not, I'll give Jesus a try today. That's popular though today. The Christian confession is not, come into my heart, Jesus, whatever that means. The Christian confession is not some mystical subjective feeling. One commentator, he observed rightly, faith must be one of the most vacuous and slippery, slippery terms in the vocabulary of religion. For many people, a profession of quote unquote faith is sufficient for them to assume they are safe as far as God is concerned. But mark it, faith in itself means nothing. Faith in itself means nothing. Faith in faith cannot save because faith without an object is nonsense. There must always be someone in which faith is placed. You understand there are about 80% of Americans that say they have faith in some higher power. That's not saving faith. According to John and the rest of the New Testament, saving faith must be in Jesus and Jesus alone. And who is Jesus? He is Lord and God, nothing less. This is the Christian confession of faith, Romans 10. If you confess Jesus as who? As Lord. If you confess him as Lord, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say Jesus is Lord. That's a supernatural confession. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This is the only confession that saves you from your sins. Nothing less will do. This is the bookend. Everything has been building towards this moment. Read the text with me, set it in our minds as we begin, starting in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came. The doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Last week, we saw how Jesus moved 10 of his apostles from fear to faith. This week, we'll see how Christ moved one of his 
apostles, the skeptic of the group from doubt to declaration. Again, the very declaration each of us must make about Jesus as well. There's four scenes here. Four scenes begin with scene number one, an obstinate apostle doubts. An obstinate apostle doubts. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus was not with them when Jesus came, referring back to verses 19 through 23 last week when Jesus appeared to the apostles in that locked room. We're not told why Thomas wasn't there. Could have been because he was paralyzed by fear, maybe. Could have been because of overwhelming sadness and sorrow. There could have been confusion, shock by the horrific death Jesus died. We don't know, we're not told, but whatever the reason for Thomas's absence, it sets the stage for verse 25 when the other disciples say to him and the verb here, imperfect tense, they're saying this over and over and over again. They're saying to him, we, we have seen the Lord Thomas. Jesus is alive. He did what he said he would do. He conquered death. And we've seen him with our own eyes again and again. They make this testimony. But Thomas is not convinced, even though these 10 men, he spent the last three years with them, night and day, reporting what they have witnessed. He is not convinced. He is obstinate in his unbelief. He's even frustrated with these men, frustrated. In his mind, they had certainly thought they saw Jesus. They thought that. They're not lying. But for Thomas, the better explanation is that they saw a ghost, maybe a hallucination. So that's why Thomas issues forth the demand in verse 25, unless, unless, and note the seriousness of Thomas's language. This is an either or. This is the same kind of either or that Jesus has used in his own teaching. Think of John 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. That's an either or. There's no neutrality here. John 3, 5, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You're either in the kingdom or you're not in the kingdom. John 6, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. This is an ultimatum that Thomas is issuing. Unless, verse 25, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, unless I see the wounds with my own two eyes, touch them with my own two hands. And, and note here, this demand is made by no one else in the New Testament, only Thomas. Unless that happens, I will not believe. And that is a strong negative. There is no room for negotiation on the matter. There's arrogance here. Jesus must meet my demands. I'll become his counselor. 
There's proud dismissiveness. Peter, don't talk to me about this anymore. John, don't bring it up again. My mind is made up and nothing you can say will convince me otherwise. Now remember, Thomas is not only rejecting the apostles who are reporting their encounter with Jesus. That's not all he's doing here. He's not only rejecting the women who have testified that they've seen Jesus. There's more going on. Thomas is also doubting the the legitimacy of every promise Jesus made about his own resurrection. Just a few days earlier, Thomas was there. He's doubting John 14. After a little while, Jesus said, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me again. Thomas was there. He heard the promise. He's doubting it now. He's doubting John 16, 16, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, in a little while, you, you will see me. He's doubting John 16, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, your grief will be turned to joy. Why? How? Because I will see you again. Thomas will have none of this. He will not be persuaded by any testimony. This is the quintessential skeptic. Sets the stage for scene number two. Scene number two, the resurrected savior appears. The resurrected savior appears. So in verse 26, we fast forward now one week. After eight days, we are told this is next Sunday. For a whole week, Thomas has doubled down on his unbelief. For a whole week, he has maintained his ultimatum. He's refused to become convinced no matter what the apostles have told him, no matter what the women have said, no matter what Jesus has even promised. And now because... The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is over. The apostles are preparing to leave Jerusalem, to go back to Galilee, to go their separate ways. And so verse 26, they were again inside same room as a week before. They're still fearing for their lives. They're unsure if they're going to be able to make it out of town. Maybe they'll be taken into custody by the religious leaders of the land. This is why the doors in the plural, the doors are once again locked. The front door is bolted. The inside door is locked shut. It's a rehash of verses 19 through 23, that first resurrection Sunday. There's one difference though. Thomas is there. Thomas is there. He's with them, which means what follows is primarily for Thomas, for the skeptic. Let's take a step back though. Understand the spiritual condition Thomas finds himself in. If Thomas remains unconvinced of Jesus's resurrection, then there is no salvation for him. Put it in the words of 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. No matter what you think about Jesus, if you do not believe that he conquered death, you are still in your sins. 
So the object of saving faith must be the resurrected Jesus. If Thomas does not believe that Jesus conquered death, then he cannot believe who Jesus truly is. It's an impossibility. He cannot believe that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Why? Because that suffering servant was exalted, resurrected. If he does not believe Jesus conquered death, he cannot believe that Jesus is the Holy One of Psalm 16, who is not abandoned to the grave. He cannot believe he was the forsaken one of Psalm 22, is raised in glory. So Thomas's faith is teetering at this moment. He's dangerously close to living out the warning of Hebrews 3 and letting his unbelieving heart, I will not believe, letting his unbelieving heart fall away from the living God. This is why, verse 26, Jesus came and stood in their midst. Why? Because Jesus will not allow Thomas to abandon him. Jesus will not let his apostle fall away into apostasy. He won't let that happen. Remember Jesus' promise, John 6. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he, the Father, has given me. Thomas is one of them. All that he has given me, I lose how many? I lose nothing. I lose no one. So Thomas cannot be lost. Thomas cannot remain unbelieving. His faith cannot fail. Again, why? Because that is not the will of the Father. It's true for all of us. And thus it's not the will of Jesus, he won't let Thomas stay in this state of pessimistic faith and doubting unbelief. And so Jesus appears. But rather than rebuking Thomas, Jesus says, verse 26, peace be with you. Peace be with you, certainly speaking to all the apostles once again, like he did the week before, he's assuring them that his victory over death means their victory over death. They need not fear anything. Once again, promising them a peace, a spiritual calmness that the world cannot take away, John 16. But I think these words were also directed primarily to Thomas. It's as if Jesus is saying this, stay calm, Thomas. Stay calm, have peace, even though you have rejected the testimony of these men for a week. Stay calm. Even though you have questioned my own promises of resurrection, do not cower in fear. Now that you see me, peace be to you. I have come not to condemn you. I've come to restore you, move you from unbelief to faith. This is the gracious love Christ has for his own. This is the mercy he shows us daily. This is the never failing commitment to not let any of his people, any of us fall away permanently. He will not let that happen. 
And so Jesus then adds these words. And no doubt looking directly into Thomas's eyes at this point, he shows Thomas that he has heard word for word. Amazing. He has heard word for word, Thomas's proud ultimatum. Verse 27, reach here with your finger and see my hands. That's exactly the challenge. In verse 25, unless I put my finger into the place of the nails, Jesus says, take your finger and do it. Do it. He then adds verse 27, and reach here your hand and put it into my side again, the exact challenge, and put my hand into his side. This must have been shocking for Thomas to hear, right? Jesus heard me. And the theological implications of this statement are immense. I'm going to give you two. The first is this. This means that Jesus, though risen from the dead physically, though risen from the dead physically, bodily, is present where his people are, always. Even though we can't see him. How else did Jesus know exactly what Thomas had said? Though confined to a body, bodily resurrection, Christ is still omnipresent. One pastor wrote this, a living Christ is a present Christ. A living Christ is a present Christ. Right here is proof that Jesus' promise at the end of Matthew is true. What is the promise that we cling to? It is this, though you will not see me, I am with you for how long? I am with you always to the end of the age. In fact, this is how John will even begin the book of Revelation. What do we see taking place in the book of Revelation? We see Christ in his resurrected glory and he is moving, walking amongst his churches. Guess what? Christ is here right now. Right now. The question is, do we realize that? And when we leave, Christ is with you at that moment too. A living Christ is a present Christ. There's a sec second implication though. Second implication is this. Jesus still bears the marks of his cross. He still bears the marks of his cross, even in his glorified states. Which means that Thomas will not be the only believer to see these scars. We will see the scars too. We will one day see the pierced hands, the speared side. This is why Revelation says not only, not only is Jesus walking amongst his church, he's present here now, but we also see in Revelation 5 this chorus of praise throughout glory. These are the angels and they sang a new song, worthy are you. We just sang it, didn't we? Worthy are you. Worthy are you. Who is worthy? It is the lamb. Worthy are you. Why? For you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We will sing that chorus too. He is the lamb for all of eternity. It'll be a constant reminder, those scars, what they symbolize, a constant reminder of why we are even in glory. Glory. 
But at this point in the story, this point for Thomas, Jesus's scars are the evidence he demanded. This fulfills the ultimatum he issued. And so now that Thomas has seen them, Jesus commands, do not be unbelieving. Do not be unbelieving. Verse 25, connect it back. I will not believe. Jesus says, Thomas, it's time to believe. It's time to believe. Leads into scene number three. Scene number three, a saving confession is made. A saving confession is made. Verse 28, Thomas answered. He relinquishes his ultimatum. It seems that he doesn't even touch Jesus's wounds. He doesn't have to. The sight of Jesus is convincing enough. And now the pessimistic doubter becomes the great confessor. In fact, he becomes the model, the model for all who will come to Christ in saving faith. You can connect verse 28 with verse 31, I have written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, make the same confession that Thomas made. What is this confession of faith? If you were to poll the evangelical church of America, you would get a variety of answers. What's saving faith, right? What's the confession? John tells us, first of all, it's a personal confession. A personal confession. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. The my is repeated for emphasis. Even though the apostles had seen Jesus and knew his resurrection to be true, they couldn't make this confession for Thomas on his behalf. That's an impossibility. Same is true today. You are not born into the family of Christ. You are not rescued from your sin by your association with others. No one, no one can make this confession of faith for you. Not your family, not your friends, not your church. You must come to Christ personally. Second, Thomas's confession was a doctrinal confession, a doctrinal confession. And in an age that downplays sound doctrine, this is so necessary to see. Thomas proclaims Jesus to be my Lord and my God. So there's no higher affirmation you can attribute to Jesus. Thomas offers Jesus the same words of worship the angels offer God the Father in Revelation 4. Same words. Worthy are you, the angels say, our Lord and our God. Same affirmation. These are the same words used by Old Testament saints throughout the Old Testament when addressing Yahweh. Think of Psalm 29, the voice of Yahweh, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. God is the Lord, the Lord is God. 
Now, Thomas attributes both of those designations to Jesus. I think of Psalm 35, 23. My God and my Lord. Sounds familiar, right? Psalm 86, you, O Lord, are God. And in fact, the Greek word here, Lord, kurios, used throughout the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. 6,000 times in the Septuagint, this word kurios is used with reference to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. He is Lord. So here's what Thomas is doing. He is taking Israel's fundamental confession of faith, the Shema, the fundamental confession of faith described in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one or the Lord alone. And he's applying that confession of faith, confession of exclusivity and majesty and deity of Yahweh. And he is applying all of that to Jesus. The Lord is our God, Deuteronomy 6, to now Jesus is my Lord and my God. No higher confession can be made. And this is the first time in this gospel or any other gospel, the first time where someone confesses Jesus to be simply God, with no qualifier. This is a doctrinal confession. We're going to look at this more in a few weeks. But saving faith is doctrinal faith. For now, though, notice the response of Jesus, or the lack, I should say, response of Jesus. Jesus doesn't correct Thomas here, does he? It's a perfect time to correct him. He doesn't say, oh, Thomas, you've got this whole thing all wrong. You've totally misunderstood everything I've claimed about myself. You've gone too far in this confession. Don't worship me, worship only God. That's what Peter did when Cornelius tried to worship him. Acts 10, but Peter raised him up saying, stand up, I am just a man. That's what Paul did, Acts 14. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. Don't worship us. In fact, this is what even a supernatural angel, even a supernatural angel does at the end of Revelation when John fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed him these things. But the angel would have none of that, which is why the angel said, do not do that. Stop the blasphemy. Worship who? Worship God. God alone. If Jesus is not God, not only are Thomas's, not only are Thomas's words blasphemy of the highest order, but even more, Jesus's acceptance of those words are worthy of hell. And then there's no hope for the sinner. J.C. Ryle put it this way. Let us settle it firmly in our minds that the divinity of Christ is one of the grand foundational truths of Christianity. 
And let us be willing to go to the stake rather than let it go. Unless our Lord Jesus is very God of very God, there is an end of his mediation. His atonement, his advocacy, his priesthood, his whole work of redemption. These glorious doctrines are useless blasphemies unless Christ is divine. Again, we'll look at it in a few weeks. Amazingly, about 50% of evangelicals say that Jesus is not God. How do we know that Jesus is very God of very God? How do we know that Thomas's confession is not blasphemy of the highest order? How do we know that there is no end ever Jesus' saving work of mediation, atonement, advocacy, priesthood, the whole work of redemption. How do we know? It's because Jesus lives. He lives. It's because he's standing right before Thomas with nail-scarred hands and a pierced side, and he is confirming that everything he said about himself was true. He is the I am. He is the I am. He is equal with the Father. He is Yahweh in human flesh. Saving faith necessitates a doctrinal confession. Which leads into the third element here of Thomas's confession. This is also a submissive confession. A submissive confession. For Thomas to confess Jesus to be his Lord means that he was confessing himself to be Christ's slave. Where there's a Lord, there's a slave. We see that when we put this confession in the context of the time that John wrote the gospel. It's toward the, towards the end of the first century. And at that time, the emperor Domitian demanded this. He demanded that his people address him. Here, address him. Here's the quote. They must address me as our Lord and God. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Confess me, the emperor says, to be your master. Confess yourself to be my subjects. Well, according to Thomas's confession of faith, the Christian has only one master, one master. And it's no earthly emperor. Our master is the resurrected king. In fact, trace church history, it is this confession of Jesus' lordship, lordship, mastery, kingship. That is what caused the early church to be persecuted. They would not bow before the emperor. Let's bring this confession of submission to us today. Christ is not looking for admirers, He's not looking for admirers. He is not looking for casual, nominal followers. He is not looking to be an addition to your life, right? The cherry on top, already good life, just add Jesus. No, Christ is to be your Lord, your master, your king. This is the faith through which eternal life is granted. It is personal, it is doctrinal, and it is submissive. It's all wrapped up in those five words, my Lord and my God. 
And you would think at this moment, close the book, John, right? It's over. Close the book. That's not where John ends this climactic passage. There's still verse 29. Why? Because John is writing this gospel for those who will never see the resurrected Lord in this life, unless the rapture comes. We'll never see the resurrected Lord like Thomas did. The point as we move into verse 29 is this. Yes, Thomas's confession of faith is the Christian confession. And it's not just for Thomas or anyone else who saw the resurrected Jesus. It's for all of us who are commanded to believe, which is why we end with scene number four a lasting promise is given. A lasting promise is given. We're on the heels of that great confession. And now Jesus issues a mild rebuke to this once doubting apostle. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? It's a mild rebuke. Thomas, you should have believed the other apostles' testimony. You should have heeded the women's words. You should have not doubted my resurrection promises. You should not have issued your ultimatum and become my counselor, demanded proof from me. But then the rebuke is followed by a promise of blessing. Not for Thomas, though, not for Thomas but for all who believe after Thomas, all of us who will never see the resurrected Lord, verse 29, blessed are they. Blessed are they. This now brings Jesus's resurrection to you and me. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. After Jesus ascends to the Father, he will make only one other appearance like this one. That's to Paul's special appearance. But that is not how Christ's gospel spreads throughout the world. You're not waiting for Christ to appear bodily. Christ's gospel will spread not through resurrection appearances, but gospel proclamation. That's how the gospel spreads today. And thus we see the promise here when sinners believe that proclaimed gospel, we look back, we testify. Jesus is Lord and God. He is the resurrected one. When people make that same confession that Thomas did, here's Jesus's promise. They all that confess this will be blessed, will be blessed. Blessed with the righteousness Christ achieved through his perfect life. Blessed with the forgiveness of sin he purchased on the cross. Blessed with the reconciliation he secured through the empty tomb. Blessed with the eternal life he gives now that he conquered death. That's the blessing promised. Eternal blessings upon eternal blessings. Promised to all who believe. The words of Peter. And though you have not seen him, what do you think Peter got this from? 
thinking back to this moment, though you have not seen him, you love him. That's us. Thomas saw Christ, we haven't seen Christ. And even still, we have no less hope than Thomas did. We have no less blessing. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice. Why? Because we have blessing. We greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And what is this glory? What is this blessing? What is the foundation of this joy? Verse nine, we have experienced the salvation of our souls. That's the promise of verse 29. The question is this. Have you made this confession about Christ? Have you made this confession about Christ? Have you made a personal confession? Or have you just simply joined a church, maybe looking for a friend group? Have you made a doctrinal confession? Do you truly believe who Jesus claimed to be? Have you made a submissive confession of faith? Is he your Lord? Have you bowed before him? This is the only confession of faith through which Jesus promises eternal blessings to all come to him. Personal, doctrinal, and submissive. Have you made this confession of faith? Father, as we come the end of this chapter, we are confronted with our own hearts against the glory of your son. Pray, Father, that you, through the power of your spirit, would open up our eyes to see Jesus as God, deity, that you would show us our failure and our need for him. If there are those who have never made this confession, may this be that day. May your spirit grant new hearts that overflow in faith and repentance. And Father, for us, may we bring this gospel, not a truncated gospel of Jesus, but this gospel to our valley that you have called us to minister. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.